Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? God, we want to know you. Not just invent you or best intention you or hope you're somebody really nice or whatever, but, but to be able to really know you for who you really are. And I just pray that as we open up your book, as we learn about a person, as we start to delve into the life of this individual, that we would start to develop a passion, even as this guy had, a passion that would seem to change the course of history. And I don't doubt for a minute you've made history changers in this room, people that will, that will transform the world around us if we're willing to let you do so. And so we are as we submit this time till nine to, to just give you free reign to, to speak to us, I know that you as the perfect communicator know how to speak perfectly us. I know you know how to speak in a way that, that every one of us would get, that you would speak bespoke to each of our ears a way, in a way that we understand, but also a message that we so desperately are hungering to hear and need to hear tonight. So I pray that you would tonight get us to the core, take us to the matter of the heart, and Lord, plant within our heart your presence and your clarity and your truth and your call upon our lives and your love and your open reaching arms to us. May we get that burn into us in such a way that we recognize, God, that you are calling to us and that we would respond in right, in right manner. I just thank you for the life you've given. I thank you for the blessing it is to walk with you and to know you and to understand you and to have a relationship with you. And I pray tonight, God, that you would break down barriers, that you would just tear down walls and fortresses we've designed to kind of keep you out and and, and to keep who you really are out. And, And God, I pray tonight that you would do your marvelous work in each of us. So captivate us in your word and may we have so much fun. May your word burst open and come alive for us and may we just get it. And may the time be perfectly spent. May it go perfectly by. It wouldn't seem long or anything drawn out, but rather that we would get it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't assume it's true because I say so, search that Bible and test everything by it. So you, you have something to hold people accountable to. So no matter what coat some guy wears or waves or crazy way he squawks or prances across the stage or no matter how many people he may have following or watching or whatever, in the end of it all, we have this beautiful book for which we can test the counterfeit. And that includes me. I would never assume that you should ever just take whatever I say verbatim. So I would say don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. Having said that, let's kind of get us up to speed where we're at. We're at about 1,000 B.C. That's kind of where we're at. So we're three millennia ago. 
During that time, the nation of Israel is in their promised land and they've asked for a king so they could be like everyone else. They're tired of looking. God's people were tired of looking different. They were tired of people looking and pointing and saying, look at how weird you are compared to everyone else. And because of that, they were like, we want to be like everyone else. And the one thing that they saw that really likened them to everyone else is that they were under someone else's position, someone else's identity. And they, and they wanted a, a king like the other nations, and God gives them a king like the other nations. I mean, how many people in Scripture can you think of that actually get fired in the Bible? And, and this guy is one of them. Now, he is a man, and please hear me, with a tremendous calling. I mean, he's got this fantastic calling, like being called to be prime minister or being called to be queen. I mean, it's a crazy calling, but even more so because such an individual here would be writing laws, enforcing laws. I mean, he's all of the members of, if you will, he's all of the jurisdictions of government in one. This guy's got an awful lot behind him. And he's got this tremendous calling, but he has no consecration. And there's our problem. Now understand, the calling is what we can see on the outside. It's we can see the crown go on his head. We can see the, if you will, that kind of really nice kind of robe thing that people kind of put on. The, the, the throne he sits on, we can see those things. And we can see that the guy's big and he's unimportant. That's the part we see. But the part that God was seeing is the inside. The term is lavav. And lavav just means your inside, or if you will, your heart. And we can often say that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And what you have is this guy who, because his heart is not right with God, it's going to surface sooner or later. I mean, no matter how much you play it off and no matter what words you use and how many times you learn to say hallelujah or amen or no one to kneel or stand or fight, fight, fight or whatever. In the end of it all, a heart that's really not right is going to manifest. You watch it in marriages. You watch the people and they say the right words and they do the right things, it seems. But sooner or later, it's going to surface because the heart really is the captain of the ship. And at this guy, what we see is through a series of failures, he's found himself now in this place where he's not, first of all, at his first, at his, at the first manifestation of this really foreign heart, what you find is that God says you've lost your legacy. From this point on, don't expect your children ever to be king. This is it. It ends with you, buddy. But then as it continues to manifest, what we find is that God says, you're fired. But sad as it is, the guy will never want to remove the crown. He'll never want to step off the throne. What you find is a guy that doesn't belong to be king anymore is still sitting on the throne anyways. And can I just say, that will be the story of our lives too, if we're not careful. That there is a God who invented you to love you and to lavish you with that love and to wrap his arms around you and make your world amazing. Like your world was black and white and now it's Oz. I mean, the difference is just completely radical. But the, but the thing is, somewhere in it, you're going to have to get off that throne. You're going to have to say, you know what? I, I, I'm going to let you reinvent my life. I'm going to let you have the right you need. Now, I want to go back one second and we'll dive right into our text. Because during that time, what God said to the guy is that, first of all, the first time that God met him over this situation, he says, listen, you've lost your legacy. He says, I've, the Lord has sought for a man after his own heart. And he says, this was the core. The second time God says, I'm actually found a guy better than you. 
Now, if we do the math, the kid's roughly 14, 15 years old, and the king at the time is a grown man. And I don't know about you, but if I were a grown man, notice I said if, if I were a grown man, and I was a grown-up, and somewhere in there God says, I found somebody to take your job better than you, I probably wouldn't look at a kid whose voice was still cracking and who's still kind of picking at his face. I wouldn't think, well, there's probably my replacement. But the first time God said something, understand, God already made clear. He already made clear why. It wasn't because he had a deeper voice or because he was a bigger guy. The original king was a head and shoulder taller than everyone. I mean, he was in essence seven feet tall where everyone else was five and a half feet tall. There's a radical difference. But what God said was what made him different wasn't what he had or what he attained, but rather what he was after. And what he was after was God's heart. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if all the people who claim to be Christian were really after God's heart? I mean, not after his stuff or his glory or his blessings or all of his cool stuff, but in the end, or even after heaven, but just after his heart. Somewhere in this, God looks at this guy who everyone looks at as the king, and somewhere else he sees a kid, and he's out there following sheep. He's the youngest of eight brothers. And of the youngest of eight brothers, we find that he's following the sheep. Now, you don't have to be brilliant to know that if it's a living animal or a herd of them or a flock of them, walking behind them is the worst place to be. I mean, when you're the youngest of eight, you get the worst job, which is walking behind the sheep. But what God sees in this kid so touches his heart, so captures his attention. He says, now that's what I'm really looking for. And you read these psalms. This kid is going to write 71, at least 71 of the 150 psalms recorded in Scripture. That's basically half. I mean, he's going to be mentioned more than just about anybody else in Scripture. And understand in all of this, of of all of these things that David does, he's referred to, by the way, 1,118 times in Scripture. Now, as big as the book is, that's still a ridiculous amount of times. God just can't seem to get this kid off of his mind. And he wants to constantly tell us about him. And here's my point, as we even get ready now to, to meet him today, is what if that was you today? What if today you made that choice to be someone like this guy? Do you think that you would capture God's attention any less than this kid did? laying out in the field somewhere, making sure that the sheep don't stray and nothing gets to them. What we'll find is that he's had to fight both lion and bear to to protect his own sheep. This is a guy that's a pretty serious guy on this. And yet in it, he writes these songs. And what's cool as a songwriter is that you kind of get the heart of a guy from what he writes in his songs. And you start to write and he writes, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic, how, I would say, how awesome is your name in all the earth. When I consider the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon and the stars that you've made, I start to wonder, who in the world am I? What's man that you even give him any attention at all? And here's a guy that just doesn't think much of himself. He just looks and he goes, man, I stare up into into space and I go, wow. I am this tiny little finite thing in the midst of this amazing, huge, infinite chasm. And yet, you know my name. And God says, now that's my boy. Now, one thing as we get into this, as I promised, the 
when Saul was originally called the original king, when he was originally called, God said there were some really weird things that are going to happen to you. The prophet Samuel says, here's what you're going to run into. And the only reason I'm saying this is it's going to help us in the text. It says, first of all, you were, I mean, he was on an errand looking for donkeys. And, and he understand he didn't think he was going to be king. It wasn't like he thought, man, I'm in the running. It's like he, went, he woke up one day looking for donkeys and he went to sleep a king. And we're going to find that kind of happening here with this guy. But understand he, went, he was looking for donkeys. And, this, and Samuel, the prophet, says, first of all, the first person you're going to run into is going to tell you, you they found your donkeys. Go home. Your dad's worried about you now. Then you're going to run into these people. And one guy's going to have a loaf of bread. He's going to have actually a couple loaves of bread, and he's going to give them to you and eat them. But another guy's going to have a skin of wine. So there's going to be bread and wine. And this is my favorite. And one guy's going to be carrying three young baby sheep, uh, uh, goats, I'm sorry, three young goats. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen young goats, but they're like on springs. Now, how one guy carries one of them would be a miracle. To see a guy carrying three, anyways. But get this, you have bread and wine and goats. Did you get that? And he says, you're going to, and, and, and I mean, it's not every day that you see a guy carrying three goats and, and someone with bread and someone with wine, and, and he's going to give you some bread and you say thanks, and then you take it. And he goes, then you're going to actually walk up this hill where the Philistines are, one of your perennial enemies, and then this guy's going to be playing music. And as they play music, the Spirit of God's going to come upon you, and you're going to be a different guy altogether. So get this. It started with this donkey thing, but then it was bread and wine and goats. Did you get that? And then it was this music thing, and then the Spirit comes upon him. Do you get that? Follow me on this. Now, Saul's been fired, but he's not interested in leaving. But now, and by the way, we left the chapter with the prophet Samuel. He was bumming. He was bumming hard. And God, who was actually quite grieved over the situation. Now, look, at just because God knows everything doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him when people walk away. If you've ever seen anyone that you knew was going to make a stupid choice and you were sure of it and you watched the results of it, it still grieves you. I mean, my mother was passing away from cancer from the time I was, I I never knew my mother without it. And I knew that it was inevitable. And the day that she died, I grieved. I was 11, but I grieved. It didn't take me by surprise, but the inevitable was still there, but it still hurt. And the reason is because you care. And the reason I say that is even though God knew Saul was going to do all of this, he still lent his heart out anyways to let it be hurt because he's just that kind of God. If you think God's one of those guys that's sort of distant and aloof and if you perform well enough, maybe he'll give you some attention, I think you're really missing the guy of the Bible because the God of the Bible is one who's chasing after you with his heart out to you, which you can abuse because he just loves you that much. And he's willing And with that, when we do things against him, it really does hurt him. So that takes us now to chapter 16, verse 1. And it says this now. Now the Lord said to Samuel, can you see that in your text, in your handouts or Bible? The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Or I remind you, that's the incumbent king that's been fired. Seeing that I've rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, or Yeshe, literally, of the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. So this is where it starts. He says, now let's go get the replacement. God, by the way, and please understand, my God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. And if you trust him enough to give him what you have, he will always replace it with something better. 
And that's a dangerous thing because you really got to trust someone with that because there is a moment. Understand, why would God try to put something in your hands if they're already full of nonsense? I mean, if your hand's already full, God's like, I have so much better. And, if, and understand, for Samuel, what he saw was a king that now no longer is king. And God's like, but I have a better replacement. I remind you, one who's actually after my heart. Samuel gets in an argument with God. And I remind you, he's a prophet. It's kind of encouraging to know that even prophets have a problem with God. And understand, this is what we often do in prayer. What he's trying to do is he's trying to tell him, God, maybe you don't have all the information, because if you knew everything, clearly you wouldn't be telling me to do this, right? And he says, look, Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me, as the Lord said. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Yeshim uh, to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. I mean, imagine, he's taking a cow with him. He's got a prophet and a cow. The last time, by the way, that Samuel was in front of all of the people, arguably other than the time where Saul says, please honor me because we're going to go and do something worship-oriented, was when he actually rebuked everyone for asking for a king. He kind of got tight with the people. So imagine when he kind of makes a public appearance, he's kind of like the Grinch in the eyes of a lot of people. They're like, oh, there's Mr. Grumpy. So you can imagine they're not real excited to see this prophet because he hasn't had a lot of really pleasant things to say. So here he is. He shows up in the town of Bethlehem. He's got a cow with him. And it says then, uh, Saul did what the Lord um, said. He went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. And they said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Now, hear me on this. That tells me it's a very public event. But the people of Bethlehem are now invited to be a part of this. Do you see that? The people, and understand, normally the leaders meet at the gate. That's where a lot of the government takes place. You know what, from, for instance, from books like the Book of Ruth, where the marriage takes place and they test those things, the leaders or the elders sat at the gate. So imagine, he shows up at the gate and the leaders are there and they're like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? Are, you, are we okay? Have you come to smite us? You know, and he's like, look it, I've come to make a sacrifice. And I'd like you all to join me. So it sounds like Bethlehem has now gotten involved. So... Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice. Come with me to the sacrifice. Verse 5, then he also, then he consecrated Yeshua or Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, a quick quiz on this. How many sons does Jesse have? Does anyone remember now? He has eight. Don't miss that. He has eight sons. It's a lot of sons to take with you, especially when you've got sheep to be looked after. Now, the last time I remind you was that he gathered the people together was a Mizpah. First uh, Samuel, by the way, I think it's ten seventeen that he gathered them together and rebuked them. Now, uh, so here we are. Jesse's now been consecrated. What that means is this guy has been set apart at this big festival now, if you will, or this big sacrifice. Now understand, a sacrifice like this meant that he offered up the parts that you wouldn't eat unless you're Scottish, and then the rest of it he barbecued and offered to everyone else. Hey, I'm, I'm cool to go to that. And so off he goes and everyone's, but he sets apart this guy Jesse and his kids. Now, what that means is there's got to be a place of honor. That happened, if you remember, with Saul. So there's a place of honor for Jesse and his kids, which, by the way, I would assume if it's the men that are going to sit there, that would be nine seats, right? That would be Jesse and his eight kids. Well, not exactly. So it was then that they came, verse 6. They took Eliav. Eliav seems to be the oldest. His name literally means God is my father. 
And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, now understand, that's what he's thinking in his head. But the Lord speaks to this prophet Samuel and he says, do not look at his appearance or at his height or his stature because I've refused him. And this is why, because the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, all Samuel has to go on is what he can see. The last guy, I remind you, and I do, I like to make mention of it, of course, that Saul, we read as if they were kind of parallel things. Saul was quite tall and great looking. Somewhere in all of that, being a tall guy, I tend to think those things walk hand in hand. But, but in that, now he looks and he sees this Eliav. Sorry, Hugo. Uh, but he, he sees this, he sees Eliav and he looks like a kind of a tall guy and he looks and he thinks, you know, he's a good looking guy. He'd look good on a stamp. He'd look great on a five pound note. That's kind of the idea. And he looks and he's like, surely this must be the one. And God's like, whoa, 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 set that, settle down. That's not your man. Now, when God says he's rejected him, he hasn't rejected him from being human or from his love. God is specific calling for a king, and this guy didn't qualify. And the reason was because though Samuel was looking at the outside, and there's only certain things he could see from there, what God was looking at was the heart. And what he saw was, this is not the heart of the king I'm looking for. I remind you, God already said, I've already found my guy. And he's somebody after my heart. So what he's looking at in the heart of these men is somebody that's after God's heart. Now think about that for a second. What if God were to call someone today to something amazing? What if it was you? Now notice he doesn't say somebody who's got all of the equipping, somebody who's got all of the knowledge, who's memorized all of the texts, or has gotten any form of you know, degrees in theology or in divinity, whatever the world that is, uh, or, you know, he's, he's kind of made sure that he's got a seminary, this or that, or he's got his, you know, his ordinations. And it's like all the things we can lay on a person for something like this. What God is really just looking at is, give me somebody whose heart wants mine. That's what I'm looking for. Give me someone that just says, God, I just want to please you. I just, I just want to make you smile. I just want your heart to be mine. And I want to have, you to have mine. That's what he's looking for. And, he, and, he, and he's going to find it, I'm right you in the youngest of these eight but he looks at this first person and he goes like well he's everything on the outside and god says but he's nothing on the inside and here's the thing beloved is you can fool me you can flash a beautiful smile and do great things but all you can do on the outside is what that's all i get to see but in the end of it all it can't last forever if the heart's not right but if the heart really hungers for god the things are going to actually be natural fruit of that And what you'll find is, you know this, where your heart is will be clearly shown in your choices. When you watch the choices people make, you see where their priorities are. Now, in this situation, understand, uh, imagine Jesse's been lined up. Jesse's got his boys and they're all sort of standing there. And he goes to the first one. and, 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 And we don't even know why. It isn't like the boys have any clue that he's looking for a new king. They're all just kind of lined up, and he kind of looks. And, and what would it be like, guys, if you were just standing there? And you were standing there, and this prophet came, and he kind of looks, and he looks, you know, Dennis in the face, and he's like, hmm. And he's like, nah. And he moves on, and you're like, nah, for what? You know, you don't even know. So and then he goes, okay. Well, Jesse calls then the second boy. That guy's name is Abinadab. Notice in verse 8. Abinadab means my father is noble. Get the first two names. My 
father is God, and then my father is noble. And dad's naming him. Anyways, so he names him, he says, he made him pass before Samuel, and he says, neither has the Lord chosen him. So the second guy, Bruno, comes by and he goes, nah. Then Jesse made the third one, Shema, pass by, and he looked and he says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Okay, how many sons does Jesse have? Eight. How many of his sons just passed by? Seven. Okay, the math doesn't add up, right? So, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, bring him, send and bring him. We will not sit down until he comes. Don't miss what's happening. Samuel looks, and he's kind of confused. I mean, seven guys have walked by. But first of all, you know, I don't know how many for you, but after a while I'm starting to think, well, this guy's got a lot of kids. And it's like, okay, six, seven, and, and then there's none. And then I'm like, do you got any others? Did I not hear God? What am I missing here? And he looks at the dad and he's like, did you give me all your boys? And he's like, well, there's the youngest. But now how would you feel? So we're going to make that Hugo for a moment because we're going to make him kind of, he's in the smallest. And since I already picked on you, I mean, get this. Imagine it's sort of like all the guys are there. And he's like, well, there's this one, but he's kind of the smallest. and He's kind of the youngest. So I just made sure he watched the sheep. You know what that tells us is that dad, whatever dad thinks could happen, he doesn't think that Hugo qualifies. Or, in, you know, in this case, obviously, David. And by the way, David, by the way, Davida means beloved. So it isn't like the dad wrote and you know, called him squirt or runt or, you know, forgettable. He just called him, called him beloved. But he kind of looked and he was like, hey, boys, the prophet says that he wants to go and call one of you. Okay, you guys go, David, stay here. Stay with the sheep. And imagine, which tells us David's the underdog. He's the one that, you know, when they line everyone up and pick teams for sports, he's apparently for the moment not the one that dad would think would get picked. Maybe like yourself. Now, maybe you can say, no, 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 I'd be the first pick. Maybe you would. But can I just say God is a really big soft spot for the underdog, the overlooked. And he looks at this and he's like, and you can imagine the dad's like, really? Oh, Okay. So he brings in the boy, and we get to see him for the first time he steps on stage. What we know so far is he's better than Saul. He's a neighbor. He's from a neighboring tribe. Saul was from Benjamin. David's from, from Judah. And also that he, he's, he's, he's a man after God's own heart. Interesting, he didn't say he's a boy after God's own heart. So in God's eyes, he saw the heart of a man in this boy. So he sat and brought him, verse 12. Look at it with me. He was ruddy. Do you know, anyone know what ruddy means? Okay, there you go. With bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him. He's the one. This is the one. Ruddy, by the way, the word is admoni. And admoni means red. He was reddish. Now, whether he had a reddish complexion in his face, I see some of you, you kind of have, I don't know whether it's the sun, you're about to drop over from the heat, or whether you actually naturally have a reddish complexion. Did he have ginger hair? To be honest, it just says he was red. One way or another, was he sunburned from standing out there with the sheep? Well, one way or another, there was something about him that was red. But he also says that he had bright eyes. Now, can I say, actually, the term is a term that's used today, and that's the term yafe. Yafe, if you're familiar with Joppa, which is just south of Tel Aviv, 
It's the new, it's kind of the evolved version of the term yofi or yafi, still used by the Hebrews, and it means beautiful. Actually, he just said he had beautiful eyes, is what it means. He had, and they translated bright because apparently during the time of the translators, beautiful eyes looked bright. There's the idea. And thankfully, they didn't say he had brown eyes or, you know, they didn't do that. But the idea was they looked and what they, the thing they noticed, to consider this, what they noticed is he was reddish and they noticed his eyes. Which is crazy, because remember what God said, separate him from everyone else? He was one that was searching after, that was looking after, that was after God's heart. And he was known by his eyes, because he was a guy that was constantly looking for God's heart. Well, with that in mind, and the other thing he did was good looking. He was easy to, good, easy to look at. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Uh-oh. What happens when you anoint the youngest brother? And then he's anointing, which tells us you're going to be king in front of all of his brothers. That's got to be rough. This says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Ramah, by the way, is where he lived. It was up on a hill. It, mean, it means heights. Now, get this for a moment. The brothers are all there. And you've all been, every brother's been publicly humiliated in front of Bethlehem. Can you consider that? Everyone's there for the feast. We're going to eat after all of this. This is the pregame show, if you will. This is the show before dinner. And we kind of watch it and it's like, no, no, uh-uh, no, uh-uh, okay, no, no, no. Any others? Well, we'll bring in the runt. Okay. Yeah, that's my guy. And he starts anointing him. And imagine all the brothers going, what do you got that I don't? What am I missing? And how would David explain? I, I don't know. I just, I just, I just love God. But please hear me. The rest of the chapter shows the other side. What we see in the first 13 verses is that God knows how to find a heart that's hungry for him. And he can find yours. If you really want God, I'm not talking about really want church or really want cool stuff, but you really want God. God, I want, I want to know you. I want to, I want to be with you. I want, I want your best. And I, I want to be your best. God's like, oh, that's all I'm looking for. God's like, just give that to me, and I'll take care of it from here. And what you'll find is a person that doesn't argue with God on what God says, isn't saying, God, I'm not going to do that because you said it, because to be honest, if you just love God, you'll find yourself doing what he tells you. But remember that king that doesn't want to step off the throne, Saul? He's, he's not here at this because he's not from Bethlehem. And what we're going to find is the rest of the chapters, well, things get worse and worse and worse. For this guy. Now, please hear me as we go through this now and finish the chapter. Saul is unrepentant. Now, it's an old fashioned word, right? The interesting, really, repent simply, the word is metanoecho in the Greek. It literally means change your mind. Here's the simplest of it if you're willing to change your mind, God's willing to change your heart. But the part He wants you to do is make a decision. And the decision is this God, I'm going to let you take the throne. I'm going to step off it and I'm going to let you put me where you want me and do what you want with me. And Saul is never going to do that. He is never going to say, God, you can have me. He is the example of a person who can be an all points religious, can be an all points proper in front of people, but in all points wrong with God at the same time. And we've seen so much of this religion, haven't we? Where people are just They've got their robes and they've got their incense. And not that those things are necessarily wrong, but they know how to do all the right things on the outside. But you can see it in the choices they make. It's just not God first. Just don't let it be us. 
But I warn you, you start running from God, it is never going to get better there. You know why? Because God made you to be the receptacle of his love. That's what you were made for. And he's got this big batch of love that he wants to pour that's earmarked for you that he's not going to give to anyone else. It's just for you. And he wants to pour it in you. But that's the choice you've got to make. And if you want to run from that, you are running from the very thing that you were created for. How can your life good possibly get better? So notice what it says in verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. I remind you, the Spirit of the Lord is God's empowerment now for a position, but Saul doesn't have that position anymore, which means from this point on, he's going to try to do what God said he was supposed to do initially, but in his own strength. It's going to have to be his own strength, but we read this as well. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, I have to make this clear. There's some that really want to make this demonic. As if what God did is he sent a demon upon this guy to torture him. Well, there's a problem with it. And there's that scriptural more times than not, when you read about a spirit of an individual, actually what you find is it's the attitude of a person's heart or their countenance. I'll give you an example. Um, when we start to see, for instance, in Genesis 41, Pharaoh has a couple dreams and it freaks him out. And we read his spirit was troubled. That was the attitude of his being, the inside of his heart, if you will, was, was freaked out. Moses, by the way, we read in Exodus 6, 9, we read Moses spoke to the children of Israel and said, hey, God's called me to set you guys free. But they couldn't listen to him. They didn't heed him because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. In other words, they were so tortured in their own hearts, they couldn't hear him. They were so in bondage in their own hearts, they couldn't hear the word freedom. In Exodus 35, we read when God says, all right, anyone who wants to then toss in to help with the building of the tabernacle, we read everyone whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. Now, understanding that, you, the attitude of their heart was there were people that were like, yeah, I'm in this. Let's do it. Well, that was the idea here. We read, by the way, that there's a, there's a spirit of jealousy, for instance, in the book of Numbers. I believe it's in chapter five. And the idea of it is that the attitude of your heart's just super jealous over a guy to his wife or a wife to her husband, primarily a guy to his wife in the context. We read, by the way, in, uh, in 1 Samuel 1, this particular book in the beginning, a woman, if you remember, that couldn't have a baby was weeping and crying. And the priest looked and thought she was drunk. And she says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. My heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. It was the attitude of her heart. And David himself, after really blowing it, would say in, in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. He's like, the, the very attitude of my heart is wrong. And the reason I say that is, no matter how you want to argue with it, what God did, the word, by the way, first of all, for evil is the word ra, that means disagreeable, malignant, unhappy, miserable. And then you have this word spirit. Can I say this? And I'm going to make it clear, this is my opinion that Saul refused to do what God told him to. And so what God did then is sent a miserable spirit upon him. He was miserable. And of course he was miserable. Now understand, and this is why I often, you've, many of you have often heard me say, God wants you miserable when you're running from him. If you were in love with someone and you committed your life to them, and they ran off, would you want them to be happy? 
Now, I'm not talking about, oh, I wish you well because we think that's noble. Wouldn't we, especially if we knew that they rightly belong with us, wouldn't you wish that they could only, like they're never going to find fulfillment anywhere until they come back? Well, that's what God wants. Understand, this isn't because God is being mean. This is because God is just bringing a person to a place where life gets so bad that the only place left to go is to him. Some of you, you know that story. Because for some of you here, and I know that because you've told me, your life got worse and worse, and you tried everything else. You tried to go everywhere else you could. And it was, and even when the outside that man could look at didn't look so bad, inside you were miserable and empty and just, you were miserable. And God wasn't doing this to make you horrible. God was doing this so that you knew the moment you turned to him, you could finally find peace and rest. And some of you, the reason I know that is because you've told me how God has given you that rest since that happened. Well, Saul's clearly, no matter how you want to look at it, Saul is in a bad way. And the people tend to notice, verse 15. Saul's servants say to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man, a skillful player on a harp, on the harp. And it shall be that he will play with his hand. And when the distressing spirit of God is upon you, or from God is upon you, well, it shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Go get me someone then. Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now, I remind you, when the Spirit of God fall upon Paul and the, or Paul, Saul in the first place, it was when prophets were playing musical instruments. Isn't it interesting that that's where, remember that whole thing? Remember it was the, we find your donkeys and then there were three different things. Do you remember the three things he'd run into? People that were, that, what were those three things? Tell me. Bread, wine, and goats. Remember that? Bread, wine, and goats. And then they'd be playing a harp and then boom, check it out. Bada boom, bada bing, spirit comes upon you. Now, the reason I say that is, is it's like, imagine he's being brought back to that place where the spirit of God came upon him in the first place. But he's miserable. And he's like, find me someone. And one of the servants, verse 18, says, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, where has he seen this guy? Following the sheep with his harp? who is a skillful at playing, who is skillful at playing, a mighty man of valor. What that means is he's somebody with moral character, a man of war, which means he's tough. Now, this is a teen, I remind you. Now, who has he fought? What David will tell us, a lion and a bear. So I don't know, maybe someone really liked David's playing and they kind of were like a groupie. They kind of hung out, kind of listened to him from the distance. And they're like, whoa, this is going to be interesting. And then a lion comes and he sees David take down the lion. And a bear comes and he sees David take down. He's like, wow, this kid's pretty awesome. And then somewhere down the line, this guy gets hired by Saul. And Saul's like, I need a musician. He's like, I know this guy. (laughs) And you wouldn't believe it, but this guy's awesome. I mean, he plays, and he's a good guy, and he, and he, man, and he's tough. And he's a handsome guy, and the Lord is with him. And I remind you, somewhere in the back of Saul's mind is, God says, I've already found your replacement. Would you think if you were Saul at this moment, this is probably your guy? So Saul sent messengers to Jesse, his dad, and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Look at what Jesse brings. Unaware, by the way, of the chapters we've read. Jesse took a donkey. I remind you, the donkey. Remember the first thing that happened with Saul is your donkeys have been found. And he loaded. What were the three things you would expect him to bring? Bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat. 
Now, I wonder what would happen when Saul saw David show up with the very things that, again, reminded Saul of his calling. What would happen if you were Saul? And I remind you, all of that happened because God said it, and now God said, step down, and he won't do it. Every time Saul said yes to God, something amazing happened, and now Saul's saying no to God, and he's miserable. So, bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat. He sent them by his son, David, to Saul. So David came to Saul, stood before him, and he loved him greatly. Now, who loved whom greatly? You can argue over that. And he became his armor bearer. That's clearly David. He, in the last part, was clearly David. The middle part, was that David that loved Saul greatly? David, somewhere in this, had a love for the guy that wouldn't step off the throne. I remind you, David's been anointed. But nowhere do we ever find that David's going to use his own intrigue to push himself on the throne. Matter of fact, twice, I mean, what we're going to find quite soon is that David's going to spend half of his life now. If he really is 15, he will spend then the next 15 years running for his life like Jason Bourne, fleeing from the king and all of his men simply because God put a calling on his life. And you'd think, wow, everything seems so gentle until God put a calling on me. And now look at it. And yet in all of that, David twice will have opportunity to kill this guy and he won't do it because he's like, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He's like, look, if God wants to put me there, it's his job to do it. So, last two verses and we pray. Saul said to Jesse, then please let David stand before me. He's found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, which is better than playing it, I don't know, with his toes or whatever. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the, distra- and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Now, we leave the chapter with Saul still in bad shape. Saul now is in a place where he is frequently or at least periodically being in this place where he's a mess. And what's to help him at this moment? One guy that God is with, who's the spirit of God is upon, who's actually called to take his place. And you ever wonder what David played? Or do you think that David kind of just started fuddling around with notes? Or do you think David whipped out some of the songs he's already written? And if he did, what would it be like? Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh God, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear because you're with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. What would that be like for David to say that, knowing his head was anointed with oil before the guy who should be now off the, the stage? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing that I've desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and behold his beauty and inquire in his temple. I mean, imagine the songs David could sing right there that Saul could listen to and go, man, this kid's really nuts over God. And can I just say, As crazy as David was for God, was not remotely as crazy as God was for David. You see, what God will do to prove his love is that he'd rather die than live without us. He knows, and and we were just looking at this this afternoon, 
that if God is a righteous judge, he has to punish all wrong or he can't be righteous. If he's a proper judge, he has to punish everything wrong. But if he loves, he doesn't want to punish those who've done it by sending them permanently away from him. And every, and hear me, every religion that's out there outside of Jesus is at the expense of one or the other. Either God's really kind of cool or whatever it is is kind of cool and nice and just letting everyone do things. Well, then he isn't properly a just judge because he doesn't punish all wrong. Or he punishes all wrong, but then everyone's eternally damned. And that's not really a cool thing to be a part of either. But God made this one provision in Scripture that if somebody without any sin, without any crimes in his heart, was willing to step in your place, God would be willing to let them, if they volunteered, would be willing to take all your wrong and put it upon him if he was willing to take it. And God knew the only one qualified was himself. And thus, Jesus, the Son of God, clothes himself in flesh, lives a life without any failure, and then dies on a cross voluntarily, so that all of your crimes of your heart could be punished. So that everything you've ever done or thought or felt wrong could be punished without God having to punish you for it. And I know that it was enough because on the one day a year they dealt with sin for the Jewish people. It's called Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur was when the high priest went in and offered a sacrifice for the people. And the way that we knew that it was accepted was he came out alive again. I mean, that was what we looked for. They actually tied a rope to his ankle with a, with a bell because if it stopped or we heard a thud, we didn't want to go in there after him. We pulled him out. We knew that the sin sacrifice was accepted by him coming out alive again. And Jesus, in the same way, takes our sin upon himself, dies on the cross, is buried. And how do I know it was enough? Just like that, he came out alive again. And that says the sin sacrifice was accepted. Now, all of that's done, and the only thing that's left is our choice. Now, on the outside, we can nod and agree, but in the inside, the issue is the heart is the where the real life choices are made. And the question is, what choice do we want to make tonight? Do we want to accept this gift? We don't have to understand anything about David to know this much. My God is in hot, passionate pursuit of you. And what he just wants, he's with his knee dropped, and he's there with the ring in his hand. If you want, he's like, will you be mine? I've done everything to prove that I love you. I've done everything to say, I just want to cover you in that. And all I'm asking is for you to say yes. Now, if God's paid your bill, why would you want to? If God's done all that, and that's the message of the cross, is that death was the old person we are, dies, and a whole brand new person rises, for which then God says, let me reinvent you better. And I remind you, he's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. So you hand him your old life, and God replaces it with this amazing life. Now, whether you knew it or not, I hated people. I never spoke to anyone. Yeah, it's hard to believe now. And I was miserable and nasty and bitter. That's who I was. That was my old life. And to be honest, like Hugo was saying, um, when people meet Hugo now, they're like, who in the world is this guy? Or they meet Angel now, and they're like, who would this? What, what happened to the crazy girl that chased people with scissors? I mean, it's amazing what happens when you give God your old life. And if you think, well, my life's not that bad, well, not that bad is still not awesome. And awesome happens when you hand whatever you have to God and you let him reinvent you. And when that happens, everything transforms. And maybe tonight that will be your situation because every one of us has a choice to make. David, ultimately, he woke up just following sheep. And then dad calls all the brothers in to a cool sacrifice, barbecue with the guys, and he's still watching the sheep. You know, and, and somewhere in all that, God's like, oh, he's calling for you, too. It's like, hey, 
I have this call on your life that nobody else here has. And I'm just one of, I've just recruited you. And all I was looking for was someone who heart, whose heart wants mine. Well, man, what if that was where you were tonight? It's where I am tonight. And that's where I want to be. And I would love to run with you with that. And say, what if we were those people tonight? We were like, God, I just want your heart. Well, pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful chapter. I thank you for meeting David tonight and the way that you're going to use him. He's certainly passionate, but he's also a fault at his passion. He's certainly somebody with drive, but even his drive will get in his way. He's certainly human with all kinds of warts, faults, failures, and wrinkles. And yet you love him and you want him because even in the midst of all of his failures, even in the midst of some of his dumb choices or his mistakes, in the midst of it all, still he wants you. And you saw that. And you saw a heart that just says, God, I just want you. So I pray tonight exactly that. I pray tonight, God, for every person who has said in one manner or another yes to you, that tonight this would be a revolution where you would clear out from us the other things that we're so distracted by and get us back, Lord, to that place. It's just you and us and just beautiful. I just pray right now, God, for every person that's here that's still dealing and trying to figure this out, that you tell us, God, that your Holy Spirit's the one who still convinces. It's not our job to do, but it is yours. And I just pray that you would confirm right now that very thing. I pray tonight that you would right now speak to us. And here tonight, if you're not sure if you've ever said yes to Jesus, if you're not sure tonight if you've ever really just let him have you, and tonight you've recognized that, you recognize that he's simply asking for your permission, and tonight you can say on this night, the hottest day of the year, you said yes. Well, I want to give you that choice. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. At the end of the prayer, and the reason I'm asking you to listen is I'm asking for you to see whether you agree with this or not. And then, at the end, if you agree and you want to say yes to Jesus tonight, then I pray tonight you'd simply give a confident amen at the end. And what that means is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it now in my life. And here's the prayer. God, if this really is all true, and that you really do want me, all faults and failures, I don't have to fight to win your love. I don't have to perform to make you want me. You already do, and you know everything about me. And yet in that, you really want to take all of the things I've ever done wrong and will and, and have them already punished so that I don't have to stand before you guilty and you want to wash me in that innocence. And you did that by sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. And all you're asking is for my permission, my yes. Well, then I say yes. I say yes to Jesus' gift for me on the cross. I say yes to his offer tonight. And I may not understand everything, but I know this. If I hand you my life and you make it awesome, I have nothing to lose for it. 
So even though this seems a little crazy or a little impetuous tonight, I just want to give you my life and say, hey, well, then do with it what you want. And even right now, fill me with the joy of that decision. And may my life be as awesome as been said. Make it amazing. So I trust you to hand you my life, knowing you will replace it with a new one, with you as the architect of my reinvention. So have me now, I pray. In Jesus' name. And if you want to say yes to that tonight, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers tonight. And I pray you seal us in those choices. May we right now, may our hearts race with the experience of the joy that you have at our choice. In Jesus' name. just want you, Lord. I just want you. I just want you, Lord. Only you. My rock and my fortress and my refuge. Oh, Jesus, I just want you. I just want you. I just want you I just want you